Chapter twenty three of The Dude Wrangler by Caroline Lockhart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Berard. Chapter twenty three Riffs. Before the birds had taken their heads from under their wings, Miss Mercy Lane was up and crashing through the brambles on a hunt for Red McGonagall. It was a morning to thrill the soul of a taxicab driver, but it had no interest for Miss Mercy. The dew on the petals of the wild rose, the opaline tints of a sweet-scented dawn, meant nothing to that lady as, without a collar, her shirtwaist wrongly buttoned, her hair twisted into a hard psyche knot, she searched for her enemy. In her earnest desire to get in touch with Mr. McGonagall as soon as possible, she clumped about, peering into the faces of the helpers, who had thrown their tarps down upon whatever spot looked like a likely place for sleeping. Pinky, she found without difficulty, also Mr. Hicks, who, awakened by the feeling that someone was looking at him, sat up, and in a scandalized tone told her to go right away from him. Red McGonagall, however, whether by accident or premeditation, had repaired with his blankets to a bedground where the Almighty could not have found him with a spy-glass. In consequence, Wallie was awakened suddenly by the booming voice of Miss Mercy demanding to know Red's whereabouts. Her lids were puffed as if she had not closed them, and through the slits her eyes gleamed at him. She looked so altogether formidable as she stood over him that his first impulse was to duck his head under the covers. Since it was manifestly impossible for Wallie to get to his feet as politeness demanded, and it seemed ridiculous to sit up in bed and converse with a lady he knew so slightly, it appeared that the best thing to do in the circumstances was to remain as he was, prostrate and helpless, and this he did, to take such a dressing down as made him tingle. Aiming her finger at him, Miss Mercy declared that deliberately, willfully, maliciously, Red McGonagall had set her tent on a hump. More than that, he had cut down an alder, leaving some three or four sharp prongs over which he had spread her blankets. She would have been as comfortable on the teeth of a hay-rack, and had not even dozed in consequence. With her own ears she had heard Red McGonagall threaten to fix her, and he had done it. If he was not discharged, she would return to Prouty at the first opportunity. This was final. Wallie argued vainly that it was an accident, that Red was altogether too chivalrous to take such a low-down revenge upon a lady, and explained that, in any event, it would be impossible to dispense with his services at this juncture. He declared that he regretted the matter deeply, and promised to prevent a recurrence. But Miss Mercy was adamant and intimated that Wallie was in sympathy with his hireling, if not in actual cahoots with him. Wallie realized that it would be impossible to resent the implication with proper dignity while lying on the flat of his back, looking up at his accuser, so he said nothing. 
whereupon Miss Mercy flung at him as she departed. I intend to ask a ride back to Prouty from the first passer-by, and I shall knock you and your ranch at every opportunity. She returned to her teepee to complete her toilette, while Wallie took his boots from under his pillow and drew them on glumly, feeling that much of the joy had been taken from what promised to be a perfect morning. Mr. Hicks, too, started breakfast in a mood that was clearly melancholy, for as he rattled the pots and pans, Wallie heard him reciting, "'And when my time comes, let me go, not like the galley slave at night, scourged to his dungeon, but like one sustained and soothed by an unfaltering trust.' He stopped suddenly, and then, in a voice that chilled Wallie's blood, he shouted, "'Jumpin' Jehoshaphat! Get out of that grub-box!' He had caught Mrs. Budlong in the act of spreading jam on a cracker. "'How dare you speak so to me?' she demanded indignantly. For answer, Mr. Hicks replied autocratically, you ought to know by this time that I don't allow dudes snooping around when I'm cooking. You are insulted. I shall report you. Mr. Hicks laughed mockingly. <laughs> you do that and see what it gets you. The cook quite evidently knew his power, for when Mrs. Budlong carried out her threat, Wallie could only reply that he dared not antagonize Hicks, since to replace him would cause delay, inconvenience, and additional expense to everybody. Mrs. Budlong rested all her chins upon her cameo breastpin and received the explanation coldly. "'Vera well,' she said incisively. "'Vera, vera well. I shall buy jam and crackers at the first station, Mr. McPherson, and carry them with me.' Wallie had no heart to say more than, Indeed, Mrs. Budlong, I am so sorry. But she was already on the way to report the controversy to her husband. When they had bathed their faces and hands in the river the evening before, someone had referred to it poetically as nature's wash-basin. Wallie, seeing Mrs. Apple with her soap and towel on the way to nature's wash-basin, was inspired by some evil spirit to inquire how she had rested. "'Rested!' she hissed at him. "'Who could rest? To say nothing of sleeping, within six blocks of Mr. Penrose? A man who snores as he does should not be permitted to have his tent among human beings.' If it is ever placed near mine again, Wally, I shall insist upon having it removed if it is midnight. Knowing the trouble he has had everywhere, I am surprised at your not being more considerate. Tonight I will attend to it. I regret very much, Wally mumbled. Mrs. J. Harry Stott beckoned him aside as breakfast was being placed on the table. Mrs. Stott had a carefully cultivated mispronunciation of great elegance when she wished to be impressive, and as soon as she began, Wallie realized that something portentous was about to be imparted to him. 
even the way she raised her eyebrows made him warm all over with a sense of guilt of something of which he was ignorant you will excuse me if i speak frankly wallie gulped wondering fearfully what she knew and how much she went on in a voice which seemed to have hoarfrost on it but the fact is i am not in the habit of eating with a help wallie felt relief surge over him his face cleared and he laughed light-heartedly <laughs> i know that of course mrs stott but out here it is different camping is particularly democratic it has never occurred to red or hicks that they are not welcome at the table and i fear that they would be greatly offended if i should suggest mrs stott drew herself up haughtily that is no concern of mine wallie it is a matter of principle with me to keep servants in their places i am not a snob but Shh. wallie looked over his shoulder in hicks direction in clarion tones she continued i cannot consent to letting down the barriers even in these unconventional surroundings you can adjust the matter to suit yourself but i absolutely refuse to sit cheek by jowl with the cook and mcgonagall wallie grew solemn as well he might for along with the tact of a diplomat to a balkan state it required the courage of a lion to convey the information to one of hicks violent disposition that he was not fit to sit at table with the wife of the rising young attorney it weighed on his mind through breakfast and he was not made more comfortable by the fact that red stimulated to effervescence by so large an audience tossed off his bonbon in a steady stream unconscious that his wit was not a treat to all who heard him and that his presence was regarded as anything but highly desirable while mr hicks brought his tin plate and by chance purely elbowed himself a place beside mrs stott with the greatest assurance wallie decided to postpone the delicate talk of dropping a hint to mr hicks until later in the day as he had plenty to engage his attention with miss mercy's departure confronting him red denied the crime with which he was charged with a face of preternatural innocence declaring that he was shocked that any one should attribute to him such a heinous offence as purposely leaving four sharp alder prongs under a lady's blankets nobody bar none had a greater respect for the sex than red mcgonagall but miss mercy was not to be pacified by apologies however abject or explanations however convincing implacable and maintaining a haughty silence she packed her suitcase and put an outing flannel nightgown with a nap so long that it looked like a fur garment in a fishnet bag having made stiff adieus to the party she went and sat down on a rock by the roadside to await some passer-by who would take her to prouty she quite enjoyed herself for a time thinking what a strong character she was and how independent a weaker woman would have allowed herself to be persuaded to overlook the incident but she was of 
different metal. For nearly an hour this thought gave her great satisfaction. But, gradually, the monotony began to pall, and she had a growing feeling of resentment that nobody missed her. It seemed deceitful, after making such an ado over her decision to leave them, to resign themselves so quickly to her absence. Maddie Gasket might come and renew her entreaties for her to return, or at least keep her company. The occasional bursts of laughter that reached her were like personal affronts, and, finally, she included everybody in her indignation at Red McGonagall. But, as the time dragged, her mood changed perceptibly. Though she would not admit it, in her secret heart, she wished that someone would come and coax her to reconsider. From this stage, while the tents were being dismantled and packed into the bed-wagon, accompanied by much merriment, she came to a point where she tried to think of some excuse that would enable her to return without seeming to make any concession. As it happened, the only person who gave Miss Mercy any thought, as she waited forlornly by the roadside, was Aunt Lizzie Philbrick. Although she and Miss Mercy had not been speaking since the episode of the butterfly, her tender conscience was troubled that she had not said good-bye to her. The more she thought about it, the more strongly it urged her to be forgiving and magnanimous to the extent of wishing Miss Mercy a pleasant journey. With this purpose in view, Aunt Lizzie left the others and started for the roadside. If she had not been otherwise engaged at the moment, Miss Mercy might have seen Aunt Lizzie's white sailor hat bobbing above the intervening bushes, but she was intent on learning the cause of a rustling she had heard in the leaves behind her. It was a snake, undoubtedly, and it flashed through Miss Mercy's mind that here was her opportunity not only to return to camp, but to go back a heroine. She set her fishnet bag on the stump she vacated, and provided herself with a cudgel before starting to investigate. Advancing cautiously, she saw a bunch of tall grass wave in a suspicious manner. She smote the clump with her cudgel, and a large, warty toad jumped out into the open. It was stunned, and stood blinking as if trying to locate the danger. "'Nasty thing!' exclaimed Miss Mercy viciously, and raised her club to finish it. The blow landed, and Miss Mercy and the toad saw stars simultaneously, for Aunt Lizzie brought down a four-foot stick and crushed in the crown of Miss Mercy's alpine hat. "'You dreadful woman!' Aunt Lizzie shrieked at her, and it was her purpose to strike again, but the stick was rotten, and since only some six inches remained in her hand, she had to content herself with crying, "'You horrible creature! You unnatural woman! Shady Lane, you belong in an asylum!' Since Miss Mercy had been told this before, she resented it doubly, and no one can say what else might have happened if Wally, hearing the disturbance, had not hurried forward to discover what was occurring. She was killing a hop-toad, Aunt Lizzie screamed hysterically. Then her legs collapsed, while Miss Mercy boomed that if she did, it was none of Aunt Lizzie's business 
It was not her hot toad. The astounding news passed from mouth to mouth that Aunt Lizzie and Miss Mercy had been fighting in the brush with clubs, like Amazons, and everyone rushed forward to view the combatants and to learn the details, but the chugging of a motor sent Miss Mercy into the middle of the road to flag it before they could hear her side of the story. It proved to be no less a person than Rufus Reed, who was transporting provisions on a truck between Prouty and a road camp in the park. Rufus welcomed company and intimated that his only wonder was that they were not all leaving. So Miss Mercy clambered up beside Rufus and without looking back started on her return journey to Zanesville, Ohio, to soothe the brow of the suffering and minister to the wants of the dying in her professional capacity. Pinky somberly looked after the cloud of dust in which Rufus and the Angel of Mercy vanished. That's one chicken we counted before it was hatched, he observed, regretfully, to Wallie. The scenery was sublime that morning, and the party were in ecstasies, but mere mountains, waterfalls, and gorges could not divert Wallie's mind from the disquieting fact that he must somehow convey the information to Mr. Hicks that his presence at table with the guests was undesirable. As he rode, he framed tactful sentences in which to break the news to that formidable person, and he had finally a complete and carefully prepared speech which he meant to deliver in a friendly but firm manner. The result he could only guess at. Hicks might quit, or he might resent the affront to his dignity with any convenient weapon, or, after a savage outburst of sarcasm, he might make the best of the situation. The only thing that Wally could not imagine was a calm acquiescence. It would be easier to replace Mr. Hicks, however, than to acquire a new party of dudes at this late season. So Wally nerved himself to the ordeal. The passengers who preferred to ride in the Surrey had now increased to a number which made it necessary for them to sit in each other's laps, and it devolved upon Wally to drive their horses. Herding loose horses is sometimes a task to strain the temper, and these were that kind of horses, so that by the time the party reached the noonday camp, Wally was in a more fitting mood to confront Mr. Hicks than when they had started. The cook was busy over the campfire when Wally determined to speak and have it over. "'Don't let him tree you or run ye into the river,' Pinky, who knew Wally's purpose, warned him jocosely. "'I'm glad it ain't me has the job of telling that hyena that he ain't as welcome as the president.' Wally could not share Pinky's amusement. On the contrary, it annoyed him. That was the worst of his partner nowadays. He was so happy that nothing troubled him. Perhaps Envy was at the bottom of this irritation. At any rate, Wally frowned and told himself that he never would have believed that love could make such a simpleton of anybody. As Wally drew nearer, through the smoke and steam rising from various cooking utensils, he noted that Mr. Hicks' expression was particularly melancholy, and his color indicated that a large amount of bile had accumulated in his system. 
There was something tragic in the very way he stirred the frying potatoes, and as Wallie hesitated, Hicks set his fists on his hips and recited in a voice vibrating with feeling. Into this universe, and why not knowing, nor whence like water willy-nilly flowing, and out of it, as wind along the waste, I know not whither willy-nilly blowing. It did not seem a propitious moment to put Mr. Hicks in his place, as Mrs. Stott had phrased it, but Wallie had no desire to nerve himself twice for the same ordeal. Therefore, with something of the desperate courage which comes to high-strung persons about to have a tooth extracted, Wallie advanced and inquired cordially. "'Well, Mr. Hicks, how are things coming?' "'I am not complaining,' replied Mr. Hicks, in a tone which intimated that once he started enumerating his grievances, he would not know where to finish. "'Pleasant people, aren't they?' Wallie suggested. "'So is a menagerie, after it's eaten.' "'They do have appetites,' Wallie admitted. "'I suppose it's living in the open.' "'I've cooked for section hands on the Burlington, and they were canary birds beside these Poland Chinas. We had ought to brought troughs instead of tinware. You mustn't speak so of our guests, Wallie reprimanded. Hicks went on wrathfully. That fat sister in the cameo breastpin, she swiped a can of potted chicken on me yesterday. She's a regular camp robber. Wallie interposed hastily. We mustn't have any trouble. I want to get through this trip peaceably. In fact, Mr. Hicks, it's along this line that I wish to have a word with you. Mr. Hicks looked at him quickly and suspiciously. Has any of them been kicking on me? Wallie hesitated, casting a furtive eye about as he did so for the most convenient exit. Not kicking. I wouldn't say kicking, Mr. Hicks, but it has been suggested. I have been thinking that it might be pleasanter for you and Red to have your own table. Mr. Hicks stopped turning over the potatoes and looked at him for what seemed to Wallie a full minute. In other words, he said, finally, in a voice that was oily and coaxing, as if he wanted the truth from him. The dudes don't want the cook and the horse wrangler to eat with them? Wallie noticed uneasily that while Hicks spoke, he was tentatively feeling the edge of the knife he had been using. Instinctively, Wallie's eyes sought the route he had selected, as he replied conciliatingly. No reflection upon you and Red is intended, Mr. Hicks. It is just that Eastern people have different customs, and we have to humor them, although we may not agree with them. There was another silence, in which Hicks continued to thumb the knife in a manner that kept Wallie at attention. Then he said with a suavity which somehow was more menacing than an outburst, Perhaps it would be better for us roughnecks to eat at the second table. It hadn't occurred to me that our society might not be agreeable to ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad you mentioned it. Hicks seemed to purr, actually. His tone was caressing. 
like the velvet touch of a tiger and his humble acceptance of the situation was so unnatural that wallie felt himself shiver with apprehension was he capable of putting ground glass in the sugar he wondered or dropping a spider in something red was plainly disgruntled when he found himself as it were segregated and he sulked openly but hicks on the contrary was so urbane and respectful that everyone remarked his changed manner and mrs stott triumphantly demanded to know if it were not proof of her contention that servants were the better for being occasionally reminded of their position i am not a snob she reiterated but common people really spoil my appetite when i am obliged to eat with them wallie however could not share her elation for there was that in mr hicks eye whenever he met it which renewed his uneasy forebodings as to ground glass and spiders End of chapter twenty three